I'll just start by saying that uh, none of my children got any of the answers wrong to the quiz, so uh, I was quite pleased with that. That was a great result for, for me. Um, just so you know that I've been working at getting over a cold this week, so that's kind of on its way out. As this, uh, this morning, we've been on a kind of family weekend. Uh, was, Esther wasn't playing with a ball, but I picked it up, and she decided that she wanted it. So as she came over to get the ball, she stabbed me in the eye with a nail, so that's why my eyes, not, not an actual, like, hammer-in nail, a hand nail, so there's a kind of little cut in my eye at the minute, that's why it's all red and a bit funny. So if I sound strange and look strange, it's because I am. Strange. No, it's, it's just how it is. So um, it's all right for you, I've got to live with it. But yeah, we're going we're gonna to look this week at mainly at the, uh, the, the parable of the lost son. I, was, I thought we'd, we'd try and have a brief look at the first two to start with and then get into this, but in my reading through, there was just so much stuff in all of them that I thought we'd try and focus in on this one and, uh, and hopefully get a great deal of stuff out of it. It's a really exciting and interesting parable to look through. But again, it's, um, I thought actually as Ian was reading the, the, the chapter to us, the parables are great, aren't they? There's, it's not often when you read through the Bible that God can call you what he likes. So we've had the parable of the soils, where God calls us dirt. There's the parable of the, the lost sheep, where God calls us sheep, the stupidest of all the animals. Um, and here we're, we're like one of two sons. So in this parable, we all get a walk on part as one of the sons. So, um, yeah. so this one's not as offensive, depending on your opinion of boys. So we're one of the two sons in this parable. So we're going to have a look through that together. Um, like I've said a couple of times, we're going to try and find out the, the big picture. And the big picture in this parable, because it's not working, can you just give us a, a right click if it works? Oh, on the uh, keyboard. Great. So the big picture in this parable, it's a parable all about uh, the Father's love. So this parable, some of the commentators even say, again, it's a bit like um, the parable of the sower. They say this could be it should really be called the parable of the soils. This one could really be called the parable of the love of the father because it's really a story about the father's love. It's not so much just a story about the son that was lost. But um, I think it's quite important to have a quick look at who the father in this story is and what he's like. He's, first and foremost, he's a picture of God for us. But in this story, he's a wealthy guy. Okay? He's got estate. He's got people at work for him. He, um, he clearly knows his onions when it comes to farming. He's got... You know, he's, he's made money, he's, he's employing people, he's got slaves, he's got hired hands, he's got kids. Um, so he's, he's a fairly wealthy guy and, and he's looked after his kids well. We can kind of assume that from the way that he treats them throughout the parable. He just seems to be a really good father. And I thought, actually, some parents, when you get down to it, I mean, I've done, I did 10 years serving on, I didn't do 10 years in prison, I did 10 years serving on Spring Harvest Kids Work Teams and we used to have 600 kids come for a week or for like sort of five, six days. And, um, and I was kind of looking after 200 of them, and two other people had the other 200, and we had our own team of people to kind of look after the kids. And I, always, I just got the naughty ones, basically. If they were too naughty, I got them. And you can tell that some parents, some parents reap what they sow. Okay? So sometimes they're like, oh, you can do what you like, and then the kids are nightmare. They've got no boundaries, and you can tell that sometimes parents reap what they sow. So if there's no boundaries, the kids can be wild. Um, if they're really strict, they can sometimes be really good. But sometimes, they don't read what they sow. Sometimes they can do everything right. Sometimes they can have all the rules in place. They can be really kind and loving, but really strict. And still, the child could be an absolute nightmare. Or, conversely, they could have, you know, forgotten to feed them. 
forgotten to pick them up, forgotten to wash them, forgotten to, you know, all those sorts of things. But they can still turn out to be really nice. So sometimes parents reap what they sow, and sometimes they don't. Basically, in this parable, he doesn't reap what he sows. He's a really good father in this parable. He's so kind and loving to his kids, but they're both the opposite end of the spectrum from each other, and both a bit of a nightmare. But this is a dad who loves his kids. That's like one of the first things to note, is that in this parable, the father loves his kids. I was talking to Hannah about what I was going to talk about today, and some of it, and, um, and we'll get to it in uh, my like half, like the two and a half applications, and it's the half is particularly about the father's love for his kids, so, uh, so wait for that half application at the end, because uh, then you'll be interested, hopefully, all the way through. If I stick it in halfway, and you're not listening, you'll miss it. So, first of all, it's about the father's love, and he's a wealthy guy, he loves his kids, and he's tried his best to look after them. Okay, so as Jesus tells this parable, uh, when he read from the the beginning of the chapter, there are two audiences. So the first couple of verses say, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him, but the Pharisees and teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. I almost decided to print out two little kind of puppets and have the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the sinners and the tax collectors so I could like problem with that but I didn't um, because that would have been a a lot of effort. There are two main groups in the audience. There's the kind of nasty uh, tax collectors and sinners. They're kind of people, you know, the tax collectors, people still don't like tax collectors and it's 2,000 years later. They were Jews who worked for the occupying Romans. They took more than they should That's how they paid their wages, but they took more than they should have taken, more than, if that makes sense. So if your tax was, say, £2, they'd take three, so they'd have a pound for themselves to pay their wage, and two to give to the Romans, but they might have taken four or five. So the Jews really didn't like the tax collectors, even though they were Jewish. And then there's sinners, and I think in the authorised version, it it calls them publicans, so, you know, people who who may have uh, sold alcohol. (laughs) Couldn't think of a better word to put in there than that so they're people that will kind of look down on in society the tax collectors and the sinners they're one half of the audience that Jesus has got and the other side I often feel when we when we read the word Pharisee um, and teachers of the law when we kind of read through it we often get this idea that you know they're the pantomime baddie of the New Testament the pantomime baddie of the Old Testament is a guy called Haman in the book of Esther and he's absolutely hilarious and really kind of sort of oddly evil Um, so go and look that up during the week he's very funny but in in the New Testament, we kind of see the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law as, as the kind of pantomime baddies. They come on into the story, and in your mind, you kind of go and boo, hiss. But some of them were all right. Some of them were a bit of a nightmare, but some of them were all right, as Ian spoke about a few weeks ago. So as Jesus teaches, there's sinners and there's the Pharisees. Um, the Pharisees saw themselves as people who were really pure. They kept all the rules. They were really good. Everyone else in society looked up to those people as godly people to, to aim to be like them was ideal. They'd, if they could be like the Pharisees, they'd be keeping all the rules, they'd be righteous, and God would really love them because of it. But the Pharisees, in their really clean, holy, and righteous situation, would look down their noses at the tax collectors and the sinners and people like that. So there's a kind of, it must have been a bit of a tense room to work for Jesus. As he's teaching, um, it's really difficult for him to work this kind of situation because there's people like, there's a bit of a kind of infight in the audience, two different levels, but Jesus gives this great parable as he teaches them. 
Okay, so I thought we'd, we'd read through it again a bit, just fairly quickly, so we get it fresh in our minds as we go into, um, into it. So Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a, dif- a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against you, uh, against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you killed the fattened calf for him. My son... The father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So as well as there being two audiences, there are clearly two sons in this parable. (coughs) So the first son is the youngest one, and, and when you look through it, at the beginning of the parable, he, the first word I wrote down when I thought, what is this youngest son like, is the word horrid. So he's, a, he's, a, he's just a nasty, nasty little child, isn't he? At the beginning of the parable, he comes to his dad and says, um, Father, give me my share of the estate. Now, for my birthday this year, my, my parents asked me what I wanted, and I, I said I'd have a um, power of attorney. They didn't give it to me, unfortunately. I, I was really hoping they would. But they decided not to. But this son goes to his father who is loving and kind and has supported him and done everything he could for him. And he says, Dad, the best opportunity, the best thing possible that could happen for me in my life is if you would just die. Because then I'll get what I want. That's what he says, isn't it? Can you imagine going to your parents and saying, do you know what, I'd really like it if you died because then I'll inherit the house or I'll inherit the car or whatever it is, how awful is it that someone would kind of think like that and be like that, but that's, 
That's the picture that we get of this youngest son. He's someone who says, I just wish you were dead. My life would be much better if you'd been done away with. Then I'll have everything. Well, that's, that's the picture that we get of the youngest son. And it's, it's kind of heartbreaking to read it, even though it's a story that Jesus tells. Could you imagine if that was, um, if that was kind of your son and they came to you and said, the best thing for me would be for you to die. But that's what he says to his father. And his father, amazingly, says, you know what? All right then. So he liquidates his assets and you kind of get the idea that he's done it in a rush and you never get the best price for something like that if you do it in a rush. So he, he sells a lot of his stuff and he gets him the money that he deserves. And back then, if you were the eldest son, you'd get two-thirds of the property. If you were the youngest, you'd get a third. Um, so the eldest would get twice as much as any subsequent children. So he gets a third of his father's estate. It's terrifying, isn't it? And then he goes off and he kind of, it says he, he squanders, um, squanders his father's wealth on like wild living, which I imagine is parties and food and drink and all that kind of stuff that he thinks would be a great idea to spend all this money on. And he gets to the point where he spent all the money and there's nobody there for him. I was so tempted um, in my preparation for this because I kind of thought, if, if when you're at school you had a bag of sweets, you had a load of friends, until one friend put his hand in the bag to find it empty. You know, so I think that's the kind of picture that um, is given here, that when he's, his money's run out, he's got no one there. I was really tempted to buy a bag of sweets and just stand at the back and just, you know, eat the old one and just see what happened. But I thought that's very cruel and uh, it's a bit unkind to kind of set people up for a sermon illustration. So I, so I didn't. But I was very tempted. Um, but yeah, it's kind of that's, that's it, isn't it? He's got a big bag of sweets, he's got all this money, and while he's got it, he's got friends and he's got influence and he's got what he wants. But eventually, it runs out. And then he ends up selling himself, basically, to a guy as a hired hand. Now, if you were a slave, you were in a better position than a hired hand, because even, even if times go hard, you can just not pay the hired hand for the next day, you can leave him. But if you have a slave, you've got to keep them. Uh, so he becomes a hired hand. And actually, what he ends up doing, he ends up doing the work that he should have been supervising. So if he'd stayed at home and worked for his dad, looking after the farm, he'd have been supervising this work, so that would have been his job as a son. But he ends up doing the work, or lower, than he should have been, that he should have been supervising. Because he actually ends up feeding the pigs and you've got to imagine, Jesus is a Jew, he's talking to Jews, and if it was a Jewish boy in the fields feeding the pigs, pigs are like really unclean animals, you know, it's, it's you know, not something that a Jew would ever consider doing, feeding the pigs. Uh, but he's in such a difficult situation that he has to go and feed the pigs. And for them in those days, when it says there was a famine in the land, effectively a famine in the land then is, you know, um, recession now. It's just like a financial meltdown. Everything goes wrong. Everything was agricultural, really. So as soon as the agriculture goes wrong, everything goes wrong. So when the, when the banks collapse for us, we all think everything's gone wrong. For them, it was a famine. So he ends up in a nightmare situation. But then the older son, uh, if we have a quick look at the older son, towards the end of the parable, he comes out that's not a particularly nice chap either, I don't think. Let's find out where he says it. So, 
uh, the, the older son hears the party and the celebration that's going on. So he hears the music and the dancing. So either there was some, I don't know how you can hear dancing unless they're doing tap dancing or, or Cossack dancing. So maybe they were doing that. Um, and he finds out what's going on. And he goes in and he says to his father a bit later on, so the older son refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look. Which isn't a very nice thing to say to you, is it? Look, you. All these years, I have been slaving for you. And I've never disobeyed any of your orders. And you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your wealth with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. I feel like when you read that, you get this idea there's kind of a lot of finger pointing going on. He's saying, I'm perfect. I've never done anything wrong. I've never disobeyed any of your orders. I've never done anything wrong. And he, he's an idiot. He's sold all, he's wasted all that money and all sorts of things that he shouldn't have. That's terrible. And he's come home and you are treating him like a king. You should have treated me like a king because I've been perfect. Well, he seems like a nasty piece of work as well, really. And he doesn't really seem to love his dad. It's all about, I've done this, therefore you should do for me. But this doesn't seem to be a very loving and friendly relationship they've got. But again, I think you can kind of guess that the father's probably treated them the same and they've turned out as opposite ends, at opposite ends of the spectrum. So as we read this story and we look at it, on the one hand, you've got one son who's broken all the rules, who the other son thinks is a, a nasty piece of work. He's just, you know, he's done all sorts of stupid things. He's wasted it. He never does anything right. But the other son thinks, I'm perfect. I've done everything right. I keep all the rules. I never do what my dad doesn't want me to do. Is that right? I, I always do what dad wants me to do. That's a much more simple way of saying it. So we've got those two brothers in the story. But they're basically the tax collectors and sinners and the Pharisees. So the younger son who goes off and you know, does all the sinful things, that's like the tax collectors and the sinners. And the brother who stays at home and does everything right is like the Pharisees. And I think they probably would have worked that out as they were listening to him. So you've basically got the rebellious son and the religious son. And by religious, I just mean like, does what he's told and just keeps on doing it, because that's maybe what he thinks is the right thing to do. Right then, let's jump onto the next slide. There are two audiences, two sons, and there are two responses from the father to the sons. Um, so in verse, where are we up to? <coughs> in verse 17, there's a great verse about the younger son. So he's out in the fields feeding the pigs and you know, trying to keep them going to make ends meet. And it says, when he came to his senses... He's kind of looked at his situation and he goes, I am covered in the stuff that comes out of the pigs. I have nowhere to sleep. I'm penniless. I'm broke. I'm working for something that I can't even imagine I would ever have done if I'd have stayed at home. This is just an absolute nightmare. But you know what? My dad, he's a good employer. He looks after people. And all the people that he hires, the people he could just drop at a day's notice, they've got more than enough food. So he says, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me 
like one of your hired men. So the younger son just looks at his situation and goes, I am covered in muck. I've got no shoes. I've got nothing. This is not a good place to be. This is a nightmare. And he thinks, the thing I'm going to have to do now is I'm going to have to stand up. I'm going to have to turn around. And I'm going to have to go back to my father and plead with him for something. That he'll just be kind enough to, to give me like the tiniest uh, bit of affection or, or bit of money to keep me going. What he does here is the younger son repents. The idea of repentance is to turn away from something, but to turn to something else. So he says, I don't want to carry on the way I am. I know what I've done is, is wrong and it's not good. And actually, the reason I'm going to turn back is because I've tasted the life that my father had. And he was so loving and kind. It's, the, it's his father's love that re- makes him turn back to go back to his father. So he looks at his situation. He says, this is terrible. I don't want to live like this. I'm going to go back to my father and I'm going to apologise. And I'm hoping and hoping that my father's love comes through and he'll forgive me. So what he does is he gets up and he starts walking home. And the picture in the parable here, it says, um, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. I just get the idea that every morning, you can just imagine the father kind of walking to the end of the street, looking down the road, thinking, he's not there today. And he goes in and he carries on his business. But one day, he gets to the end of the road, and there's a kind of shadowy figure in the distance. And he's got the same walk as his dad, because you, know, you tend to walk like your dad, I walk like my dad, and swim like him, oddly enough. But, so he sees him in the distance and says, he walks a bit like I do. That's, that's my youngest boy. And this old, old chap, he runs to his son. The thing is, in, in ancient culture, running, apparently, was for children and lunatics. To run was shameful, unless you're a child or a lunatic. If you're a lunatic, I assume you just were shameful. So they will ignore them. So for an older wealthy man, respected in the society to run, was seen as something really shameful. Particularly when they didn't wear trousers or anything like that. They would have had a, like a robe with a kind of a like a, an under robe underneath like a nighty. So he'd have had to, to do this, he'd have had to like hitch up his, I'll be impolite, hitch up his skirt and run off down the road to see somebody's ankles. Now that, that was the height of uh, impoliteness. So he was running off down the street after his son with his, his skirt up round his knees Going for it, I imagine Victorian ladies would have had to do it if they were to run, but they wouldn't have run either. So the analogy falls down there. So he hits it up and he runs after him, thinking, this is my son. I've not seen him for ages. And he gets to him, and he's covered in muck, and he's got no shoes. But even though he, that, he drops his skirt back to where it should be, and he flings his arm around him, and he kisses him. So in the, in the, in the English it says, he threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. Apparently... I can't read Greek, and the only Greek word I can say is feta. He says, instead of it's, it shouldn't say kissed him, apparently, that's, the word is keeps on kissing him. So he's got this boy in his arms who smells of pig muck, and he's just keeping on kissing him, showing his love for him. Because the youngest son's, he's turned back from his, his old ways, and he's come back to see his dad. So he throws his arm around, and he keeps on kissing him. But the other thing that happens here is, um, if you've You'll find the book of Deuteronomy. It's one of the, uh, the earlier books in the Bible. If you find Deuteronomy chapter 21. Right. 
there's a, a terrifying bit about parenting. So we'll just read that very briefly. It's only a few verses. Deuteronomy 21, uh, verse 18 to 21. This is what the father manages to avoid for his son. Do any of you have got, uh, have got children and sons? Uh, consider this. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him, bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a profligate and a drunkard. I'm not quite sure what the word profligate means. Then all the men of his town shall stone him to death. You must purge evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if, when you were younger, and when you'd been naughty to your parents, and you hadn't done what you'd been told when you were told off, if they'd taken you to the elders of the town, and because you'd been disobedient, they'd stoned you to death, well, you wouldn't be here now. I know I definitely wouldn't be. Imagine that. So when the father runs to meet his son, not only... um, does he do the amazing thing of hugging him when he stinks? But as he puts his arms around him, the whole village is going to respond to this son the way the father responds to him. If the father decides he's cross with him, then the whole village is going to come out and pick up the stones and they're going to kill him. But as the father embraces him, nobody's able to throw a stone at him. Because one, the father's forgiven him, and two, the father's protecting him. If he puts his arms around him, no one's going to risk throwing a stone in case they hit the father. So the father saves his life as he wraps his arm around him he saves his life and he shows his love for him and he kisses him and he keeps on kissing him well then he says bring a a robe and put it on him bring a ring and put it on his fingers bring sandals and put them on his feet the amazing thing here I think is that he doesn't say to the servants give him a quick bath and then we'll do this he says he stinks but just get them let's put them on him now so they get a robe they put that on him as they put the robe on him that's to kind of signify the honour that they would have had. He asked for the best robe, which presumably would have been his father's robe anyway. So they put that on him and he's, you know, he's back, he's in a place of honour. As they put the ring on his finger, uh, rings in the ancient world apparently were sometimes used to transact business deals. So when he says put a ring on his finger, he's saying, you know, go, go to the bank and get him a credit card with his name on it. Get him a chequebook so he can write checks in the family name. He's got the authority and he's uh, kind of back into the family business. He says, put the sandals on his feet so he can presume he'd walk back shoeless. Slaves didn't have shoes, but the family wore shoes. And apparently it was the, the kind of dream of a slave to be shod, because then they were part of the family and they weren't slaves. So as they put the shoes on his feet, he's back in as part of the family. And he's taken back to the house. We have no idea whether there is a, a washing process here. Um, but then they kill the fattened calf and they have a great party. But all this time, there's the older son. And the father responds to him in just as loving a way. The older son comes to him and goes, look, I've done all this, I've always done it right, and he's gone and wasted your money. He's gone and he's slept with prostitutes and he's drunk all the money away. I mean, we don't know for definite that he had done that, because we don't know if they had reports come back to him, or if the older brother is saying, I know what he's been up to, because I know what he's like, but it really hasn't got any idea whatsoever. But he says... He's done all these horrible things and he's wasted all your money. What are you doing looking after him? The father turns around to him and he says, Look, 
almost just forget about that for a second. Everything I've got is yours. I've kept it for you. I'm looking after it for you. I'm not going to give it to him because he's had his inheritance. Everything I've got is yours. Basically, he says, I've kept my promises to you from the very beginning. And this is a time for you and I and the family to rejoice together. The slightly upsetting thing about this parable is that's where it ends. We don't know what the older son does. It's left open-ended, so we don't quite know what happens to him. But there are basically two types of people that crop up in this parable. The two sons, there's the religious son, the older son, and the rebellious son, the younger son. And I looked on Twitter this week, and, and I don't know how to say his name. It's, is it Tulian something, Ian? Billy Graham's grandson, uh, kind of married in. He's got a really odd name. He's written a book called Nothing Plus Jesus Equals Everything. So it's the guy who wrote that book. If you read his name, you'll not be able to say it either. He had, he put a, a blog post up, and it was called Two Ways to Run from God. And it was basically, don't do what God wants you to, or keep all the rules. Uh, break all the rules or keep all the rules. Two ways to run from God. And that are the two people in this parable. He says, uh, the religious one. Why do they miss out on a relationship with the father? Well, he seems to miss out on a relationship with his father in this parable. Because all he's bothered about is that he's only bothered about doing what's right so that he looks good. He tries to keep all the rules so that when his father turns around, he just says to him, I've kept all the rules. Now it's your turn to keep your side of the bargain. He sounds like a real kind of perfect son in a really annoying way he's trying to, to earn what his father just wants to give him to him, give to him for free so the father wants to, to love him and show him that but he's trying to earn everything from his dad and the other one is the rebel he's gone and he's broken all the rules he's not done, yeah, he's not done anything right he's broken all the rules he's brought shame on the family, shame on himself and that you could imagine could upset the father but still because he turned around, because he repented of what he'd done wrong, he went back to his father. The father loved him. So there are two ways to kind of run away from God. Either we break all the rules, or we try and keep the rules, trying to earn what God wants to give us. But there's one more son in the parable, if we click on. It's the final son to think about. And this one takes us from kind of the story into a bit more of reality. Now, I didn't realise that there was another son in this parable until it was pointed out to me. And the final son, well, technically he's not in the parable, the final son in this passage is the narrator of the story. The final son is the son of God. It's Jesus. He tells his story. He's the last son. And he is the perfect son of the perfect father. When we look at this as kind of the, the rebellious and the religious. So but we know that the Bible says Jesus didn't break any of the rules. Jesus wasn't the rebellious son who went out and did everything wrong. But he also, he wasn't the religious son either. Because all the religious people looked down on him. They thought, it says they, they muttered, they, he eats with tax collectors and, and sinners and eats with them. And he, he hangs out with all the, the dirty, mucky people in society. But Jesus was never, was never sinful. And he actually never made light of the sin that people were doing whether they were religious or rebellious. Jesus is the perfect son of the perfect father. And he always did what his father wanted him to do. And he wanted to do it out of love, rather than trying to earn anything from his father. 
Ultimately, Jesus' love for his Father led him to the cross. And it's the first time the phrase Abba Father comes up in the Bible is in the Garden of Gethsemane. The first time where, where Jesus calls out to his heavenly Father and he says, Dad, please, I want to do what you want me to do, but it's going to be really difficult. Please help me. And if you, can, if you can do it another way, let's do it another way. But whatever you want is what I want to do. So ultimately, Jesus' love sends him to the cross. And with him, he takes our rebellion and our religion to the cross as well. And as he does that, and as he dies on the cross, the sins that we all commit, whether it's rebellion or whether it's trying to earn God's love, are put to death with him on the cross. And he rises again, God's um, satisfied with his, his sacrifice. And then he ascends into heaven dealing with your sin and mine. So as we come to the end of this, I said there were two and a half applications. So, basically, we all tend towards rebellion or religiousness. I have always tended towards rebellion. Um, in a very polite and you know, middle-class sort of way. But um, that's where I've kind of, the way I've always gone. And my brother, he was always the good child at home. I was never at home. Um, I was always out in the woods building dens and starting fires and getting told off for it later on. So I was the rebellious one. He was the religious one. But we all fit into one of those categories more or less. So either we've broken lots of rules at home or we've always tried to be really good for our parents. But I think if you're more like me and you're more on the rebellious side of the characteristics, I think God wants to say to you, you haven't and you never will break too many rules for me to love you and as soon as you turn around and repent I'm going to be there to put my arms around you as you stink as a muck of pigs and I'm going to kiss you and I'm going to love you and at that point I'll bestow on you all the riches that there are in Christ I'm not going to say to you clean yourself up and then we'll talk about it I'm not going to say to you go in there go and stop doing x y and z and then I'll see if I let you into church he says Look, as soon as you've repented of your sin, as soon as you've turned from your rebellious ways to love me, then I'm going to throw my arms around you and I'm going to love you and I'm going to pour out my riches into your life. Which is just ace, isn't it? You can't get anything better than that. If you've been a rebellious son and your father is willing to say, I'm willing to forgive you for all the things you've done wrong, take you back and call you my boy or my girl, and tell everyone about it. Isn't that just amazing? So if you're rebellious, that's what God wants to say to you. And if you're more on the religious side of things, if you've always been a bit of a goody two-shoes and a good at kind of doing things and, and those kind of, that side of things, I think God wants to say to you that you haven't done enough right for me to love you. I want to give you my love without you trying to earn it. I think God wants people who who are really religious, who try to keep the rules, to just almost say, I want you just to take five minutes to sit down and realise that I love you so much that in grace, Jesus went to the cross so that your sins could be paid for, which you've got. You've, everyone's got sins. He says, look, because I love you, Jesus has paid the price. You're never going to do enough right for me to love you. I just want to give you my love. I think depending on which side of the, the fence you sit on, God has, uh, wants to say different things to us. 
But the issue is that we can be a Christian or a non-Christian almost in either category. We can be rebellious, we can be a rebellious child who hasn't yet turned back to the father, that we still are covered in pig muck feeding the pigs, but we've not yet turned back to the father. Or we can be religious, trying to keep all the rules, thinking actually I'll please God enough that one day he'll forgive all my sins because I've been a really good boy or girl. But actually, both of those sides need to turn around and say, I'm not going to be rebellious or I'm not going to be religious anymore. I'm going to turn to the Father and ask for forgiveness and let him love me because that's who he's made me to be. So we're going to finish with my half application. So they were the first two. If you're rebellious, turn from your sin of rebellion and let the Father love you. If you're religious, turn from your sin of trying to please God and let him love you. And my half application is basically... God wants to show his love to each one of us. And I think part of it is, I just want to encourage you to say, actually, if you've got kids, grab hold of them, give them a massive hug, and tell them how much not only you love them, but how much God loves them. So just get each one of them, or if you've got one, one of them, and just say, I love you so much. You're my precious child. But you know what? God says about you, that you are his treasured possession. And if you put your faith in Jesus, he's going to forgive all your sins and he will shower you with so many blessings. So grab hold of your kids and do that. They might find it weird, particularly if they're a bit older, but don't be afraid. And as soon as a teenage boy says, oh, dad, stop kissing me, it's weird. He just means carry on. Okay, so that's fine. And the other one is then, husbands, get hold of your wives and do just the same. God wants us to show our love for him, but always say that Jesus loves you so much more than I ever could. Because that's the truth of it. God loves us more than we can know. And we have to turn from our sin, whether it's breaking the rules or whether it's just trying to keep the rules to please him. So I'll pray and then we'll finish with a final song. Father, I want to thank you that you are the perfect father. And Father, we thank you that you have the perfect son, the Lord Jesus. Father, I thank you that he, um, there was, he committed no sins whatsoever. Father, I thank you that he remained in your will all the time. He did what you wanted him to do. Father, I thank you that as Jesus went to the cross, he took our, our rebellion and our religion with him. And Father, he made us people who can experience your love through grace, the, the free offer of, of salvation through him. Father, we thank you that that is such an amazing truth. Father, I pray that you'll help us if we're people who are more likely to be rebellious. Father, I pray that you'll help us to, to turn to you in love and desire to do what you want us to do out of love and not to do the wrong things that, that we sometimes really enjoy doing. Father, help us to see Jesus as our, our number one, our goal and our, the, the delighter of our hearts. And Father, if we're religious, I pray that you would help us to see Jesus as the one that we want to please rather than to build up our pride and to, to build ourselves up thinking that one day you might love us because we've done enough. Father, I thank you that no matter what our earthly fathers are like as well, you're a perfect father. And you love each of us. Father, I thank you as well that the picture this gives is that you want to throw your arms around us and, and cuddle us and kiss us and tell us how much you love us. And Father, if, if there are people here that, that don't know you, Father, I pray that they would repent of their sin and they would turn to you and, and they would let you pour out your love into their life. Father, I thank you so much for Jesus. Father, I thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. Father, I thank you that you bless us in so many different ways 
And Father, I pray that you will help us individually and, and as a church and as Christians worldwide, Lord, to just be people who really want to seek after you and your heart. Father, I pray you'd help us to not be rebellious and not be religious, but to love Jesus most of all. Amen.